Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Today I'm joined by Cynthia Arnson. Cynthia is a distinguished fellow and just stepped down as director of the Wilson Center's Latin America program. Throughout her career, Cynthia has established herself as one of the country's foremost experts on the Spanish-speaking world, particularly Spanish-speaking countries of the Western Hemisphere. During more than 20 years at Wilson, she's testified before the House and Senate, has produced scores of publications on Colombia, Central America, Argentina, Venezuela. She's looked at issues such as security and organized crime. She's looked at issues like energy, human rights, and U.S. policy in Latin America. I've been an avid consumer of her work. She's a former foreign policy aide in Congress. Cynthia has also held positions at Human Rights Watch and in academia. I admire Cynthia's work both at the Wilson Center and outside of her time at the Wilson Center. I'm really pleased to have a chance to talk to her about how she sees how Latin America has evolved, the future of U.S.-Latin American relations, and how her career is intersected with all of that. So, Cynthia, thanks so much for joining us today. Dan, thanks so much for the invitation. Okay, so, Cynthia, you've been following South America for a very long time, or a relatively long time. I've followed it for a very long time, too. But talk about some of the progress that's happened and some of the things that have changed and some of the things that have stayed the same. Obviously, the biggest change from when I started working on Latin America in the late 1970s during the Carter administration is that South America is no longer under a military dictatorship. Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, Brazil were military governments. Those were the beginnings of the insurgencies, the very bloody insurgencies in Guatemala and El Salvador and later Nicaragua. It's good news for the region and for the United States, not only that there have been those transitions to democracy and away from authoritarian military government, but also the end to shooting wars, to violent conflict, which is not to say there's not a lot of violence in Central America throughout the entire region, or that democratic governance isn't being challenged in so many different ways. But I do think that the kinds of human rights violations that characterized those years in the late 1970s into the mid-1980s, and through the um, signing of peace agreements in Central America, the situation for human rights has definitely improved from those times, with notable exceptions. You know, we all know which ones those are, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba. I mean, there are just uh, terrible abuses, political prisoners, torture, all kinds of things, terrible things going on. It's not as widespread as it had been at one point. One of the issues that has been and one of the areas that you've put significant focus over time is the issue of human rights. Certainly, it's a vast improvement when you don't have so many authoritarian regimes. But could you talk about how the issue of human rights evolved over time in the region? Well, let's see. Again, I think that it is better than uh, than things were under military dictatorship when torture, murder, you know, assassination, dropping people, drugged people from helicopters, you know, into the river or the ocean, um, as happened in Argentina. You know, those things are not taking place. But that by no means says that there aren't really serious human rights issues, ongoing human rights issues in many countries, including the ones that I just mentioned, where people are imprisoned and tortured for their political views, that there aren't many new forms that we now recognize gender violence. The fact that in a country that is 
democratic, like Mexico that has elections. Tens of thousands of people have disappeared as a result of the drug wars. And that is truly, truly shocking in a place like Colombia, which signed a peace agreement with the largest guerrilla group, the, the FARC in 2016. Violence in rural areas has gotten much worse. Uh, in certain parts of the country along the border. And this is not to say that, that Colombia hasn't made enormous progress over these decades. Of course it has. But for people that are living in areas where criminal groups and paramilitary groups and former guerrilla groups and active guerrilla groups are fighting one another for control of territory and population and drug routes and routes for illegal gold, you know, coming from illegal mining. The civilians that are caught in those areas are still subject to massacre and and, uh, forced displacement and all the kinds of horrible things that we see. So, you know, there's lots and lots of issues to be concerned about. And it's always hard to be, so to sort of relativize, you know, if there are fewer people being tortured, does that mean that there's progress? By some counts, sure, it does, you know, make a difference. Let's just say that the kinds of human rights problems have changed. In some ways, certain things are better, and in other ways, they're not. I think we all need to be vigilant. So, yeah, one of the things when I did a briefing back in 2015 for one of the presidential candidates on the hemisphere, I said, One of the biggest problems is drug finance, organized crime. Could you talk a little bit about that? You've done some work on organized crime in the region. And I think they're obviously, they're not the only challenge to human rights and security, but could you talk a little bit about organized crime and how should we think about organized crime in the hemisphere? Wow, it's a really big question. Um, Organized crime um, creates violence. There are times when there's pacto mafioso, you know, where violence goes down simply because the state or local officials decide not to confront violent actors. And there are many who argue that that is better for the civilian population than the kinds of frontal assaults on criminal groups and the efforts to capture you know, the, the leadership and something that leads to fragmentation. It is a growing problem. There are ways that organized crime has penetrated the state in many countries where the state is weak, and it looks for those kinds of situations of state weakness and of corruption in the government, in the in the security forces, among civilian populations. Organized crime wields enormous financial power. You know, if you have a, a member of a police force who earns $200 a month, and all of a sudden they're offered $5,000 a month to look the other way. That's not to say that everyone that earns a low salary is corruptible. That's truly not the case. The power of organized crime has grown. Its um, ability to co-opt politics, to enter politics directly in certain areas in Central America, for example, the expansion of drug trafficking routes now through South America going over to Africa and into Europe is very problematic. And the governments in in Latin America have a number of tools and have made some significant efforts, but it's very, very difficult. They have money, they have arms, and they also have a ready consumer market in the United States, in Western Europe, and increasingly in Latin America itself. So these are not easy issues to solve. 
There are many who argue for alternative policies, for things that are treating drug addiction as a public health problem rather than as a security problem. Lots of difficulties with that approach. Some say that if you take the profit out of the drug trade, it would become far less lethal and it should be regulated. But that is just politically a non-starter in this country as in many other places. Well, I had a conversation a couple of years ago with... Um He's a former Argentine ED to the Inter-American Development Bank. And he wrote a history of the Inter-American Development Bank. I think I was one of like five people who read his book, but it was really interesting on the history of the IDB. Actually, the IDB as an idea, it was first proposed in the 1880s. But one of the things he talked about in the interview was that the Western Hemisphere is an exporter of energy and an exporter of food. Just get your thoughts about energy and food. We're having this conversation in the context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has caused major disruptions in food prices, major disruptions in energy prices. So if I said to you, Western Hemisphere and energy, discuss, what would be some of your reflections about that, Cindy? Well, there are many countries in the hemisphere that are major exporters of oil and natural gas. Uh, and those countries are in South Brazil is a large exporter, Mexico, Colombia, to a lesser extent, Venezuela, even though the oil sector has been destroyed, it's slowly, slowly kind of, you know, gasping its way back to life, Ecuador as well. And then there are, and Argentina has shale gas in, in Vaca Muerta. So there are countries that have enormous hydrocarbon potential and, and have lived off of the revenues from those exports for a long time. But there are other countries that are strictly energy importers, Central America, the Caribbean, with the exception of certain countries like Trinidad and Tobago. I would be remiss not to uh, mention Guyana and, and countries like Chile that, you know, imports large quantities of Argentine natural gas. And there has been an effort by many countries to shift towards more renewable forms, not just as a response to climate change, which it needs to be, but also as a way of lessening their dependence on energy imports. And Chile is a perfect example of that. The amount of energy now that's generated from solar and wind is just huge. And many countries aspire to do that. A lot of countries have a major portion of their electricity generation from hydropower, which is a renewable source, but it's also a very vulnerable source at a time of climate change and droughts and, and changes in the hydrological cycle. But you see countries that in the days of Hugo Chavez, you know, benefited from these oil subsidies, you know, at really low prices through Petrocaribe, exports from Venezuela, those are no longer happening. So the countries that depend on energy exports in Central America and the Caribbean are really hurting at a time of these soaring energy prices. Let me shift to a couple of countries. We've talked about security. We've talked about human rights. You've done some significant work on Central America and El Salvador in particular. I don't know how to describe the current president, President Bukele, but could you talk about the evolution of El Salvador? Uh, I think it probably reflects a little bit the conversation we've just been having a little bit. Well, El Salvador is um, in a very difficult place. Nayib Bukele, the, the president, is elected president, has, I think, the if not the highest, among the highest levels of popularity in the entire hemisphere. And probably in the world, too, Cynthia. Exactly. And it's because he is 
offering citizens something that, that they want. Now, whether this is sustainable and whether it's being done in a democratic context that respects human rights, I mean, those are areas that are extremely problematic. But since the um, end of the internal armed conflict in, in El Salvador in 1992, gang violence has taken off. El Salvador has the dubious distinction, you know, of being one of the most violent countries in the world. And different governments have tried different approaches, including negotiations with gangs, trying to professionalize the police to be able to fight gangs. But it is a very, very difficult problem in a, in a country that does not provide a lot of opportunity for young people and where the police are not able to simply combat or arrest their way out of the phenomenon. The agreement that the population has given Bukele is that, you know, you help us on the security front and we'll give you support for these hardline policies. And that has spilled over into multiple attacks on the democratic institutional infrastructure of the country, the dismissal of the Supreme Court, sending the military when the Congress wasn't voting his way on questions of the security budget, investigations of journalists. You really see democratic rights under attack, but that has not, does not appear to have affected the levels of popularity that Bukele has. And I think that's a very troubling phenomenon. Elliot Abrams said, dealing with Venezuela, another country I want to talk to you about, there's three solutions to Venezuela. One is magic, a military solution, or a political solution. So Venezuela has been run by either Chavez or Maduro since the late 90s. One could argue is sort of a, a failure of the previous political class or sort of the leadership of the political class in Venezuela. And then they've had something like five or six million Venezuelans have left the country, have been sort of driven out maybe as a policy or very difficult to live there because of both the economic policies and sort of the, the very oppressive nature of the Venezuelan regime. You know, many millions of people have left, something like two million of them are in Colombia or more than that. So could you talk a little bit about Venezuela and what's going to happen there? Well, let's go back to um, the, the three possible solutions that, that Elliot Abrams mentioned. I think that... I'm going with magic. <laughs> exactly. We can, always, we can always hope for some magical realism, you know, from Gabriel Garcia Marquez to, right. to you know, to, to uh, work its way into this. That's not going to happen. There was, I think, active consideration of a military solution during the Trump administration, um, this rhetoric about all options being on the table, whatever, there really is no military solution. In Venezuela, you would have guerrilla forces from Colombia joining a fight inside uh, Venezuela to protect Venezuelan sovereignty. You have armed militias. It would be ugly hand-to-hand -hand combat in, in hostile urban areas. I mean, it would be very, very difficult to imagine how an invasion or a military solution to Venezuela wouldn't really spark a much wider war in South America. And I don't think that that's in the interest of Latin America, and I certainly don't think it's in the interest of the United States. And so one is left with some sense or some hope that there is a political solution or a political evolution that is possible that makes Venezuela less authoritarian, more democratic. A lot of people say that's wishful thinking, but to not look at that or at least explore those options is just, I think, to condemn Venezuela and Venezuelans to the persistence 
of a repressive dictatorship under Nicolas Maduro. So, you know, there are people who say, well, there have been all of these different attempts to negotiate with the regime. The Norwegians were trying to broker talks. You know, in Mexico, there are efforts ongoing to get those talks. Maduro is in a better position than he was even two years ago, vis-a-vis the minimal, minimal recuperation of the oil sector with help from Iran, at one point from Russia as well. But what I think Maduro wants is relief from sanctions and relief for himself and other members of his regime from criminal prosecution in the United States. And so the question is whether there is a negotiation that is possible that leads to a greater democratization, greater political space for the opposition to campaign and to credibly contest elections in exchange for some of the things that Maduro wants. And and the question is, how far is anybody willing to go? Those things are very unpleasant, but there's really, I think, no perfect solution, not one that isn't going to impose costs on all sides. Let me start. How about Argentina? So there's been a lot of political tumult in Argentina. There's a lot of economic tumult in Argentina. What's going to happen in Argentina? Just uh, in in the month of July, a rapid turnover in terms of ministers in charge of the economy, a level of inflation, not the crippling, but uh, the difficulty that the agricultural sector is having from a combination of drought, from higher prices for fertilizer, the ongoing inability of Peronismo to consolidate as a coherent movement. It's been very factionalized. Alberto Fernandez is having a very difficult time charting a path forward that offers some sort of relief in terms of the economic downturn and the levels of inflation. And there are constant negotiations and renegotiations with the International Monetary Fund. Billions of dollars are are owed to the IMF. Um, It's politically very unpopular to have to cut budgets or remove subsidies in order to be able to make payments on the debt. Uh, We'll see what happens going forward, you know, when presidential elections come up. I would say that Peronismo is in a very, very difficult moment right now. I agree. Cynthia, my last question for you is, okay, U.S. policy towards Latin America, there is a sense, I'm in lots of these meetings, you're in a lot more of these meetings than I am, but there's often a complaint, we don't, the United States doesn't pay enough attention to the region. What's your reaction to that statement? What's the future of U.S.-Latin American relations look like? A refrain, I would say, in U.S.-Latin American relations that the United States doesn't pay enough attention. It pays attention when there's a crisis as in guerrilla insurgencies in El Salvador or, uh, you know, a um, revolutionary government in Nicaragua or whatever. But it does not consistently have something that it can offer the region. At the same time, there is a tendency in U.S. policy to define policy as competition with China, which is a very large actor in the region in economic terms, in political terms, and increasingly in security terms. Although I think that that latter piece dwarfs the economic relationship, which was initially a trading relationship, then became a relationship that showed China providing huge amounts of financing um, and infrastructure investment, which Latin America very much needed. And the United States has been fairly passive 
in providing alternatives that are not just sort of delivering lectures about to Latin American countries about how bad it is to be doing business with the Chinese. The future, I think, is a more and more fractured hemisphere, more and more domestic constraints on the ability of a whichever U.S. government to play a positive role. And I think this has to do with issues of trade predominantly. It also has to do with issues of investment, of nearshoring, which is an issue that came up at the recent Summit of the Americas. The United States offers, and particularly the private sector offers, in terms of investment potential and other forms of technological and scientific exchange, that sort of thing. But there is no one-size-fits-all policy for the United States towards Latin America. The needs of Central America are very different than the needs of Brazil. There are people in the U.S. government that spend all day every day working on Latin America, but it is not necessarily an issue across the U.S. government in the same way that other regions of the world are. Well, Cynthia, I really appreciate you taking the time today to do this. It's great to speak with you. I'm glad you're going to continue to be very active at the Wilson Center as a senior fellow. Thanks for coming on today. I look forward to seeing you around town. You're always very productive and prolific, so I I continue to read your work and I'll be watching you carefully. Thanks so much for being on today. Thank you again so much, Dan, for the invitation and also for your very kind words. A pleasure to be with you. You're welcome. Thanks, Cindy. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 